This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. My name is Ann Hong Nguyen Drucker. I go by Ann. I am a cloud security architect and a senior cybersecurity engineer at JPL NASA. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Um, before we start our interview session, I would like to quickly state that all personal and professional opinions presented herein are my own and do not in any way represent the opinion or policy of JPL, NASA, or Caltech. I appreciate that, An. Um, so um, what does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? I, you know, that question is really deep and in our last um, session, I thought about it a lot. And um, for me, I feel um, if I can capture it, um, what it means in uh, to be a Vietnamese in three words, it would be uh, family, resilient, and forgiving. Wow, I uh, have never heard anybody encapsulated in three words, but the most interesting one for me is the forgive, the forgiving. I feel like every time I come home, um, people, not just from my village, but also like from Ho Chi Minh City, when we travel, we get to the airport and everything, people were very welcoming. Like they they love it, kill. When I came home, the first time I came home, almost 10 years now, and I took my ex-husband with me. Um, he is a black American. He um, or African American, he is like, I'm 5'4 and he is 6'4. And when I took him to my village, I was actually a little bit nervous, right? I don't, I don't know what to expect. Um, my family love him. I know that. My family raised me that 
you know, the color and all that stuff. You love the person. You don't judge them for like just the outside look, like the books, the cover of the books or anything like that. So right. I know my family be accepting of them, uh, of him, but I didn't, I didn't know how other people like my neighbors and yeah, like all the relatives would, ex- um, um, if they would accept him for for who he is right an uncle or something right and during the war he he fight for the Vietnamese and um one of his uh, eyes were taken out like during the war time right and he came and he shook my ex hand it's like you know that like very touching for me I felt like he forgive like he said you know things happened many years ago I you you probably wasn't born during the war time yeah. and I do not want to hold you like for what the like all those politics all the things that are going on during the war it's just like I just feel such a relief like I feel like that's how we are like not just my family but almost like every Vietnamese we have very big hurt we we we're very forgiving people like you know it just like let let it go and let it be right and yeah. just 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 show the love I was so relieved to hear the punchline to your story because I was so nervous that that uncle was going to say something bad and to hear him, you know, say something uh, good, you know, it feels good to hear that. Yes, it is. It's really touching. And I, I, yeah, I just, after that, I feel just more comfortable. Like, and then my family just love him so much. The kid around, like, you know, they, they say, you look just like us you like you you just like us like we sit at the table we eat we talk and all that stuff it's just like they treat him like part of the family there's no yeah it's not different than um any of us and i think unfortunately uh the people in the diaspora experience i think pain in a very different way you know when i first started this podcast i was told by my elders and and this makes sense very uh, very much to me is we kind of have to honor their pain because you know when you basically when you have to leave your own country there's this pain this excruciating loss that happens that we as a younger for me i was born here and i didn't go through any of that and i i am so detached from the pain that my elders reminded me you have to remember to not invalidate uh, your elders' pains just because yeah. you didn't go through it, you know? Um, and there, some some of them are unable to forgive. Mm-hmm. And that is such a, a tragedy, uh, a tragic situation for uh, anybody who cannot forgive. And I understand it, um, you know, uncles and um, plenty of uncles that, that died um, for, in those different conditions. And, you know, I have sympathy for it. But at the same time, I, I am a big proponent of forgiveness. But who am I to ask these older men and older women to forgive because I didn't go through it. So it's not my place to, you know, ask them to forgive. But I do enjoy forgiveness when I'm in Vietnam of coming from the Vietnamese people inside of Vietnam. Just what you're saying in people in your village, they're very open. Uh, the people are not really, you know, thinking about any of the relative war uh scenarios that my uncles and dad you know experienced yeah yeah and you know a lot of families they have people from both sides and people died from both sides and you're right we don't expect like we don't ask people that you need to it's time to forgive or something it had to be on their own time 
yeah. right? When they can do that, it's on their own time. And I feel like that's why you don't, because people deal with pain differently too. So you don't judge people on um, how they deal with that kind of pain. And I just feel like for me, from that experience, um, it's really helped me, um, you know, it really, it's really helped me to feel more comfortable, like to open up with my family and like to, to like to take my ex around and, and introduce them to the neighbors too. It's just like everyone were very open and welcome him, but you're right. Yeah, there are people that are still in pain today because like, they lost family, loved ones, and all that during the war, right? Yeah, so you can, yeah. The whole world was was gone. You know, um, I am interested in knowing um, how you got to the United States and your journey um, of leaving the village. Because I understand that you didn't leave uh, Vietnam when you were a baby or at five years old. You left as a, as a woman who uh, pursued her studies. And could, so can we talk about that? Sure, yes, yeah, thank you, Ken. Um, well, when I were, I had this opportunity when I just finished high school to come here um, for college. I actually almost um, didn't accept it, the opportunity. Um, and the reason was because both my parents were not well. Like they both suffer from strokes and my, um, my mom was paralyzed, like half of her body. And my dad had to walk with a cane and his um, emotional state was not very good, right? He, he cried at everything. He couldn't communicate well. And I only have one brother. He's two years older than me. I just couldn't feel like I could leave Vietnam to come here for, it's like, I'm so selfish if I go, right? Um, so I almost say, no, I'm not going, even though the opportunity for a girl like me in my small village is one in a lifetime. What you couldn't even think about it. Like, yeah. you know, couldn't even think it's possible to be here. What was the opportunity? That to come here to go to college. How was the opportunity presented? Yeah. So I get um, the one of my um, like family friends or close um like a cousin that were here in the US um, before, um, like, I guess similar to um, like the people that leave Vietnam when, you know, the fall of Saigon and everything. So she were here then. And then she did all the paperwork for mm -hmm. me. And the reason she did all of that was because of my parents were not well. And she feel like the only thing that would help my family would be to give me a future where I can come here, go to school, and then send money home to help my family, to help my parents and my brother to get out of poverty. And that's that's how it presented. And so, so I almost did not want to go because I just feel like I left a burden for my brother. He had to take care of my parents. And we don't just like here, home care or anything right he had to take care of my parents like like a nurse at home right and so yeah but I remember my mom and dad couldn't say anything but I just remember they keep saying go go just like that and then they start crying just say go go and then just start crying they don't say much at all and then my brother say 
you know, the only way for us to break the cycle to be poor is for you to be able to have a better life and then help us when you are better in the U.S. I remember leaving Vietnam. Um, my suitcase just had books. I had nothing and I had $200 that my chemistry teacher gave me. It's like, I had no money. Like we live in a farm. It's like, you know, what you had on your table is what you harvest from the farm. You don't have extra money to like, if you want to go eat anything, right? So my family wouldn't even have the money to just say here, like some money for you to take with you to the U.S. So my teacher, uh, my, uh, does she teach chemistry? She gave me $200 and that's what I have with me. So yeah, but that's how, that how I get here. And and that's why I feel grateful every single day. Not many people had an opportunity that I have. <laughs> and when you got here, uh, you started uh, as a freshman in college? Yes, I started, um, you know, and I, like my first semester, I took um, 12 credit hours, like I double major. So I majored in mathematics and computer science. Yeah, and I, I took 12 credit hours my first semester here, but English is for second language. So I, at night, during the day, I would go to school, and then um, at night, I go to the um, English for Second Language Center so I can study English. Like, um, my English would not, um, like, I can write. It's really, um, yeah, I don't have problem with writing and reading. But listening to the people, like especially American people speaking English, it just sounds so fast. All I could hear was like S, like oh yes, and that's it. So I had a notebook with me and a um, dictionary. And then every time I couldn't understand what they were saying, I said, can you just write it down? And then I respond back in like written language, um, like written sense too. So that's how I communicate maybe for the first year. Like a lot of time with just carrying a notebook and a dictionary. And then that's how I talk to people. And then in school, I would like always the first one in the class when the semester start, pick out my seat right next to the teacher. And, and then like back, like, you know, asking for the syllabus like four weeks before the school starts so I can do the translation. Like I translate everything from English to Vietnamese. So yeah, for like four chapters before I even go to the first day of class. So, so yeah. So, <laughs> uh, and when you were starting out, did you have an idea of what you would be doing in life? Well, um, the reason I picked my major is also, I think I did know what I wanted to do. I. When I was in Vietnam, I was also really good with math. And um, and then because we were really good with math, we get selected, like a group of us get selected to go to the computer lab. Like, you know, that we do like some simple uh, programming. Like every week we get to, um, yeah, we get to do that um, for like a lab session or something in high school. And when I come here, I say, well, I can be a math teacher. Uh, 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 and I do need to learn how to use a computer because I feel like every single place we go or do anything, any kind of businesses require that you need to know how to use a computer. 
So that's why I picked a double major in mathematics and computer science. Uh, so yes, I, I thought that I would be a developer, like a programmer writing code. So my language, um, when I studied at that time was C, C++, Visual Basic. Now a lot of the people using Java instead of that language. Most of the, a lot of people, Java, Python and all that. But for me, it was C, C++ and Visual Basic. Um, yeah, but I didn't, I didn't really think that I would be in the cybersecurity field. But I know it's something computer science related field, but not really um, cybersecurity until like my fourth years in, like almost done with my um, bachelor degree. And that's when I was looking at like, okay, what do I want to do next? And uh, at that time, I feel maybe that more um, cybersecurity issues start to bubbling up, like more people know about, hey, their risk that related to cyber, right? Cyber risk, cyber threats and all that. So I was like, okay, maybe to protect myself, I should go into like study more about what, how to protect myself from those cyber um, attacks or like those spam, those like, you know, all those different things that, um, yeah, that could hurt me online. Like, yeah, online. Um, so that's how I go into cyber. So it's almost like first try to like protect myself because I am here alone. So I almost feel like anything I do would help protecting me, keep me safe. Yeah, here in the U.S. But going from a sort of personal protection idea to a career in cybersecurity—that's a huge leap. Can you go and can you walk me through uh, the thought? process so when you started to protect yourself uh, from cyber threats to the day that you actually got hired at your first cybersecurity job what what happens what what are the things that you know happens in your life that leads you to the point where you're like i can do this as a career yeah so i think first start out is the selfish reason right i try yeah. to protect myself but then seeing just the people that getting hurt, company that get hacked, you know, like the data breach that we see, like all of that, I feel like, hey, if I can at least, um, how do I explain? Like first is to protect myself. And now how can I help others also, right? How to, do I protect, how, how can I use my skill to protect other people? And it's like, um, it's really is a natural transition for me. I did not start it out in cybersecurity immediately after I graduated. I started out as a quality assurance person. Um, and I think a lot of that helped me, like shaped me to become a better cybersecurity engineer just because I, I look for faults in software, right? And a lot of that, how um, a software develop is vulnerable that's how the attacker can get in because they use that vulnerabilities, yes, to um, yeah, to conduct their attacks. So I think because of my background in quality assurance, it's really helped me think like mm -hmm. think like an attacker. If you develop your software, how do you make sure that it is not just functionally sound? 
but also secure and reliable, right? Um, and I think that's why it a natural flow for me to go from, so I start out at JPL as a QA lead. Yeah, and then um, when the, but I always have my eyes on cyber. So I work with one of our um, cybersecurity um, team members uh, on like improving the process of like, um, how can we inject in um, not just functional requirements that testing for the, the system functions, but also for the non-functional requirements. Those are hard to identify, right? So we need to look at those. And then those are the cross-cutting, like the security, like how can we make sure that you check for, um, in, um, for um, you, you have to check for buffer overflow, the upper bound, lower bound, the, the input validation and all those stuff. Things that, yeah, those vulnerabilities are where the attackers get in, like they use that for their um, attack. Um, um, yeah, um, so so that's how I really um, get in. So just start working with the, the team, the cyber team, and then uh, eventually my management recognized that I can, yeah, I can be in the cyber team. And also I started my PhD then no. with a focus on information security. And I, I just think that because people start before maybe they, just did not, it was not that visible. Like people, most people did not think that cyber threat um, was that real or very, um, 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 uh, how do you call it? devastating? It could care, it could have a devastating um, the company. Um, impact, right? But now more and more people realize that, that you don't have to use like guns and weapons to launch an attack, you can do a cyber attacks that could destroy a country, right? The critical infrastructure. So I think that's how people can see more and the more and more important of cyber security role in like any organization and also in personal uh, life. Because like I say, I started out as how to protect myself from those scammer, right. right? Because it's so quick and easy and cheap for them to launch like thousands of spam email. They only need one person to click and give out the credentials. And they could like make a lot of money just by just one person doing that, right? Uh, yeah, well, uh, so I don't know if my answer is getting yes. too long. It just stopped me. <laughs> no, 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 it's great. Um, but before we go on, can we get a definition uh, so lay people can understand uh, the idea of what cybersecurity is? Well, I think if you ask different persons or different, they would have different <laughs> definition. But I guess, what is but your for definition? me, yeah, like for me, the term cybersecurity is like, how do you protecting like computer system, data, the preventative controls. So when I'm talking about controls, like different configurations, policy and requirements that you have to have in place um, for not only protecting the systems, a computer system or anything that with, I guess a microchip or something like, yeah, your your internet of things or anything, right? So um, how, it's not just the protection mechanism, but also detection. When I think of cybersecurity, I don't think of one thing. 
I think there are many, many connected things that put together to protect like whatever the data or the, um, the valuable assets that you have, the training for the people that you have in place, the technologies that you have in place. So we're always looking at, you know, like technologies, processes, and people. Like how can we make sure that we have the technologies or the security controls in place to protect the data, the, the valuable, the things, the assets that you deem valuable to you. And then also, how can you have those processes in place so that you can, yeah, you can make sure that those controls are executed properly. And then also the people, because a lot of time people looking at, oh, we can just put additional technologies um, on these new capabilities in place and we will just be okay, like we can be safe from the attackers, if not the people is very important and not just patching the operating system, but we also need to make sure that we patch our human operating system because those are the people that are closest to your data. Right. So how do you train them to protect the data and also train them to look for things that like abnormal, right? Things that our, uh, yeah, like ordinary, like, um, I, yeah. I want to skip around because uh, this question just popped in my head is not one of the prepared <laughs> questions. I, I think when I'm listening to your answer, I think about like, let's say a small country like Vietnam, right? They don't have, they probably, I'm assuming they don't have the best people who are worrying about cybersecurity, but I'm sure within their infrastructure, they do have computer, they have security systems, they have things that they need to protect. What is stopping a big country like Russia from owning Vietnam on that level? Because I, I would think that that's like such an easy target. These small countries, uh, like a big country is like, you know what? I wanna own three or four of them. Like, I don't need to go into Ukraine. I don't need to go in. I could just do some cyber security stuff and just basically own them because the vulnerabilities on a small country like Vietnam or Ukraine is just so, open and not uh the 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 walls the fortify fortification of security is not there so what would stop like these big countries from just basically owning a small country oh that's a really good question that's a really good question i think you know there are laws and regulation and like before we may just talked about just the physical law and regulation but we also have cyber right, the cyber regulation and law. And I feel like if Russia or China try to own Vietnam in a way of cyber attack, I think there's also intervention from like oh, um, other people that more powerful that had the capability to help protect those countries, you know? I, that's just my opinion again. I yeah. feel that like, yeah, because that's how we can preventing wars from like, yeah, so for some of the smaller countries that maybe feel more vulnerable to those countries with a, a lot of the capabilities, the technology and a lot of the smart people that dedicated to just all they do. And we do have those, right? We had those advanced uh, persistent threats, those people that are like government funded that all they do is looking for vulnerabilities and to do those kind of like hacking and um, launch those type of attacks are targeted at a certain company or countries, right? So that is real. Um, but 
the question you ask is that why would like some big com- a country don't just already launch mm-hmm. a cyber warfare and own like Vietnam or any countries that yeah. vulnerable? I think it's because of those laws and regulation that we had around like behaving in cyber um, cyber world, right? Cyber <laughs> cyberspace. Like, yeah, I think that why. Um, it's hope to making sure that those people are um, not so out of control, but there are, there are attacks that are noticeable that targeted like critical infrastructure in some of those country already, right? That like they could, um, yeah, it, it's happened, but I, I feel that it's, it's still somewhat in- um, The early stages of this stuff. Yeah, it's not it's not as bad like like you say. Yeah, because when I think of like smaller like African countries who are like neighbors, and one country is just much more uh, financially able, and yeah. they have uh, maybe the, the 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 engineer, the manpower to do it. Why would they not just you know um, swallow the next country over if if they have all these cap- capabilities and how really how much detection can really happen on a small smaller scale you know and who's regulating them who's watching yeah like but what benefit also like what the what do they want to gain from that kind of attack right is it just to say that they successfully hack a country or so that they uh well, I, let's um, say like this Pakistan-India yeah. uh, conflict that has been happening for many generations. And, you know, and that, those are two big countries. But let's say that there is two smaller countries that nobody's really paying attention to. The bigger country can easily go in in the future. I think that these things are um, such a God, when I think about it, it's such a black box that, you know, the future is going to just look so bleak with you know these cyber attacks, you know. Yes, yeah, because you're right. They don't learn. You don't need to deploy human right. people. You can just sit in your country safely in your country and deploy those attacks. Yeah, and you can still destroy a country without having to deploy human to that country, right? Just yeah, you know, yeah. I I need to get into the questions of you know sort of what it what exactly you do without being you know. You, crossing over the line of you yeah. know, security and, and, and all of that. Um, but even before we get into all of that, I just have so many questions about the idea of leveraging the power of a big country uh, that has no rules or no oversight because they're yeah. authoritarian, they don't play by the rules, versus a smaller country or a country that has their hands tied like the U.S. We have Congress, we have legislation that we can't go out and do retaliatory practices the way we could do that would leverage the playing field. You know, we just can't do that as, as Americans. We're not, that's not how we operate. We operate, we're governed by rules and laws, right? And so how does that play out with big countries with each other and one country like the U.S. has got their hands tied and another country like Russia can do whatever the hell they want? Like, how do you <laughs> mitigate that that discrepancy. That's a great question. Again, I, you know, I feel even with law and regulation, I think it's still depending a lot on the each individual, right? Do you want to use your knowledge and expertise for good or for evil? Well, that's, feel- that's like you on as a, an American thinking, you know, that is very an American way of thinking. And I, 
obviously love you know the way that we think here in the u.s but do you think russia and china thinks that way i'm just <laughs> you know, i just don't see it you know i just i think that when the gloves are off and you can you know do whatever you want bigger these countries that need to do this will do it and i think that they do do it i mean just by watching the the social media patterns i feel like it's an implosion inside the u.s the way we're you know so divisive and polarized against each other and yes, yes. And I know we, you know, we do have those, like I mentioned earlier about the targeted attacks, that we have countries that targeted the US, or certain company in the US. And, you know, I can't really say for certain, but, and though some of those are successful, right? They, the hack are successful. Like I say, there were successful attacks that targeted like certain government, uh, governments, um, organization in the US by other countries, just like the recent one, the solar winds attack that I not real reason, but it like last year, yeah, in 2020. Okay, now it's two years now, but yeah, in 2020, at the end, like December of 2020, that's happened that we know that like that could be like a 1000 people that like cybersecurity professional like us, like me, that working on um, okay conducting those attacks and that will fund it right so because it had to be a yeah it had to be an organization that well organized and funded to work on that and that's why make it make our job a lot harder as security cybersecurity professional that do it like try to do good like try to protect our um, organization our company our infrastructure our data right because None of us had a thousand people working on it. None of our company, like, yeah, you know, especially small company, right? Like JPL, we don't have a thousand people on cybersecurity, focus on cybersecurity alone, like cybersecurity professional. So yeah, so that, that is the struggle because you have a lot of people, um, organization that well-funded to only their only job is to find vulnerabilities in those targeted company like software and system that they use and try to get in and see what information they can gain or what kind of destructive behavior they can carry out. Um, so yeah, because if you think about it, the amount of money that it costs to pay somebody in a small country a thousand a thousand employees, yeah. employees would be much cheaper than a thousand employees here in the U.S. at a governmental level. So the leveraging, the 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 over leverage, the ratio of manpower is completely you know off when you think about the the scales of the leverage of uh, you know and the engineers. I mean, how much more better do you need to be uh, on an engineering level or a cybersecurity level to out leverage? some other country if they have a lot of people working on it yes yeah and they had the funding to the funding, yeah, yeah to support that it's really true and then like i say just technology alone we couldn't yeah we we couldn't protect our company right we're just trying to get the next best security controls or tools to put in place if yeah we don't have the correct process and the the people the skilled people and a lot of time like cybersecurity professional yeah our salary is not cheap right so how do you have the kind of skilled staff 
yeah. that available to yeah to to protect your company um intellectual properties and all that yeah yeah um god the more i think about this issue the more uh darker it gets so i i hope that we have some resolution uh to you know to combat this uh this whole issue at one point yeah <laughs> well i think you know i really hope that people like even if like now um like um russia or china or any countries right or the us the people that um that had a bad intent of what they want to use cyber their knowledge their skill for i really hope one day we will all look and just like agree on that hey we should use our skill to do good and not evils you our skill to protect our infrastructure our uh, yeah and our countries and not to destroy other countries well, you know I, like no I, I will i will argue philosophically that somebody in another country can look at their national endeavors their national <clears throat> their national accomplishments as a good for their country and in their mind whatever attacks could be used as a as a twist to defense and not offense and so in their heart they they're doing the right thing you're right you know and it's just like oh we are iranian we're chinese we're you know wherever we, any country even if you think about the us we in the us are thinking that we're doing the right thing but in yes. reality you know so it's it's so the 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 i think the area of of all of this debate is so gray um and and what it is all about is like there is no more physicality that's at the end of the day the the logic is you don't need uh human personnel uh in battlefields and you don't have like the great wall of china you know a thousand years ago or hundreds of years ago where there's a physical barrier or there's an ocean between the us and other countries you know that is all gone right there's, you don't need a wall, you don't need people, and you don't need an ocean to to make things vulnerable for another. And so I think that's like a, the new um, paradigm that we're dealing with and existing with uh, in, in the world. You know, you really make me start thinking a lot deeper because <laughs> I can say, oh, I wish one day everyone would see we all just hum human being and teach each other kindly, no matter what country we are in or at or whatever right? yes but yeah <laughs> I, I mean this is something ever since uh chris which is uh, your i think your mentor boss at yes. uh at, at jpl uh, ever since i met him um these questions started to dominate my brain it just started <laughs> to and i can't think of anything else because when i think of you uh and the position that you are uh, we'll talk about that right now uh okay. i think about what you do, I, I just kept getting dominated by this question of over leveraging uh, in this new day and age. So with all, all that being said, um, what is your job at uh, the JPL lab, if uh, you don't mind me asking and not crossing the line into uh, security, um, a breach of security? I, I don't want to get anyone in trouble. Me too. Yeah. So let's see how I can explain it. So I am, as I mentioned, I'm the uh, cloud security architect and also a senior cybersecurity um, um, engineer. So my job, well, my current job right now is just focusing on our cloud infrastructure that we have at JPL. So looking at all the technologies that we have in place 
you know how we move the data, a lot of our data are being moved from on-premise, like in our physical data center, right? A lot of our data are in the cloud. So now, how can we make sure that when the migration um, occurred that everything that we have still properly protected, the application we have that from the on-premise system or servers still operate on the cloud. And then, yeah, so looking at not just from the functionality, but from the cyber perspective, because a lot of time there's a, um, uh, I don't, I don't know how, like a naive thought about if you move to the cloud, you, you shouldn't be worried, like you should be safe because, um, yeah, the responsibility now is to the cloud vendor, like Azure, AWS, Google, or any, yeah, those are the three big, um, three big names, right? But it's not really true. It's a shared responsibilities, really? and that's where our team, me and my team come in, right? So like we're looking at how can we make sure that we have the technology that had to be cloud native. It just, because if you try to make something that you use on, on premise to work on the cloud, like for like intrusion detection and response capabilities, they may not be cost effective just because the way that cloud is structured, right? They can spin up instances as quickly and tongue it down as quickly also. And like the IP address is no longer static. So you can't really like some of those um, security system that like all controls are put in place looking for those statics mm -hmm. list that no longer exists. So how can you make sure that those security controls that you deployed on the cloud are working as expected or that is working effectively, right? And then, um, and then also like what kind of security requirement and policies we need to put in place. Cause like we have requirements and policies that used to be just looking at on-premise um, infrastructure. We don't extend it to the cloud. So how can we make sure that we update those either making a subset that focus on the cloud because you can't say that what work on on premise should apply to the cloud right. not always true right it's could some of them would still apply like multi-factor authentication doesn't matter where yeah it still apply but like other things may not and and then yeah so how can we make sure that the policies are updated so it reflects the yeah the uh, the cloud infrastructure the cloud environment and then also the people my if my team had always been supporting on-premise systems and now we expect them to be able to support our cloud infrastructure training needed to be in place so they need to have the skills that, that they need to support this new infrastructure like intrusion detection and respond on the cloud. The, the same procedure maybe um, you can use the same procedure like you know like you had to first do this or second do that, but the actual execution is different like in a different environment it's different and things you look for, yeah could may not be the same. So you had to have 
the training needed to support that. And so my job really is to look to see how, because none of us are lucky enough to just go in, like most of us, I don't, I shouldn't say none, but most of us, we don't just have a brand new canvas and just say, hey, here, just build like all the protection capabilities process and here unlimited funding that you can get your tools, your, your staff and all that stuff. And then just build it the way you think it need to be. You have to like try to make the existing thing work with the new thing. Like none of us like 100% on the cloud, especially those like more mature company, you know, like the new startup, maybe just start everything on the cloud different. But for us, we have things that on premise at our JPL location and then things that on the cloud, how do you make sure they operate correctly, right? With each other, how do they talk with each other? How can we make sure that those kind of communication is secure and all that? So, and then, and then also the balance with like how secure should you, um, like what kind of security control should you put in place that you feel like, hey, that is enough that we can feel comfortable enough that we had the protection capabilities in place that, or protection and detection and response capability in place, right? Because there's a balance. We don't have unbe- uh, unlimited Maybe. budget. Yeah. To, to, uh, and then also if you make it too secure, the system may not be able to work. Like it not, yeah, user may not be able to use. And we know one thing from cyber is that if you make it too difficult for our user to use the system, they find a work around. And when they find a work around, they compromise security. (laughs) So so that's a balance between security and usability too. So yeah, so I look and like, I do a lot of research and I like set up controls, like security requirements and controls that we, our engineering team need to implement them. And then we like communication again, because I were talking like, I think I kind of mentioned it, but not really go in depth is that security has so many different area. It like you have identity, you have networking, and then you just like everything, like you have vulnerability assessment, you have intrusion detection, and then the response team, like we call them the security operation center, right? So how can we work all well together and communicate and everybody know what the other person is doing, right? So like, if I architected something so that, um, like I change uh, making sure that a configuration um, is placed so that like, for example, I, I don't know how, how many techie people we have on the channel, but like, you know, when you are on premise, the configuration change, like you make a mistake and make, make something um, insecure at least on-premise sometimes, like not all the time, but sometimes it's less impact. Like it less, um, it had a, a, ne- a less negative impact on that mistake. When you all, when you on the cloud and you make that same mistake, um, the impact could be very- Severe. Huge, right? Very impactful. Like if I just open an S3 bucket to the world, when it's not supposed to. Now, anyone with an internet connection can access that S3 buckets with all the data that could be just private 
data that only for the company uh, or certain people in the company to see. So that's why it make it a lot more challenging for us, like to make sure that we had a correct configuration in place day one or what when launch, right? Because people that do attacking, they have their scan running continuously 24 seven. If you make a mistake, one minute later, somebody already get, gain access to that S3 bucket with all of your data and it will be somewhere on sale, right? <laughs> uh, for sale. So yeah, so that's my job, just to make sure that we balance security controls and usability and making sure that we make the right decision. Yeah, so that we don't expose our, yeah. Now, our, our data to the people that not intended to see. <laughs> now, when you mentioned the vendors earlier, like Google, Azure, you know, how much involvement and capabilities are those guys doing on their level? Because I can imagine you try to do your job, but now you're dealing with the vendor. You, there's a separate component and a separate team. Uh, how well qualified is the other side, you know, these people that you're playing with? Yeah, we work very closely to um, yeah to all the vendor with all the vendors that uh, we have um, at JPL. Um, you know, so depending on at what level in the cloud, what level um, like what deployment model you use, right? So many things that I mentioned are for the somebody not. Okay. Okay. So I think for like all the vendors, because I mentioned about the shared responsibilities and depending on what deployment model you have with our cloud um, vendors, right? So the lower on the stack, like we had the infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and then uh, software as a service. So as you go up higher, like software as a service, a lot of the responsibility now rely on the vendors. So you, all you really do, they provide you the application at the top level, right? So really right now is you make sure that if that software is authorized for your company to use, then you wanna make sure that the data that is authorized for that software is the only data that been uh, process the war or capture in that software and then who had access to it. So at that the level that you really had control like your organization um, had control over is just the top level like what data can you store process or yeah capture there and then who had access to them. So like very little controls you have there. Um, and then maybe try to integrate it with like the um, um, your identity service in your organization instead of create local account in the in, in that software so that that way if a person leave the company if you disconnect their access from your um, identity service in your company they don't have access to that data because if their account created from the application or from that vendor software itself then to have access the person left your organization, they may still have access to that data because the account is not integrated with your identity service here. So that the only thing, like the concern that um, you have there, but like a lot of the work that we have, like, you know, is the, at the in infrastructure level, right? So we, so like those vendor would basically just provide you 
with like the servers, the physical um, location where your servers will be at, who has access to it. So like more at the physical layer, they have control when they implement those controls, like who has access to those servers or yeah, those physical location and everything. But you still have a lot of the responsibility on your side like for your networking and then your identity and like your OS, your operating systems, like for all those instances that running on the cloud. So now a lot of the responsibility is on outside. And I think all those big vendors, they provide a lot of the, of the native cybersecurity tools, like yeah, that to help us like, you know, like those services, that available um, that are native to cloud, cloud native, or even native to their own infrastructure, right? Like AWS had their own uh, services that work really well in protecting our data. So all we need to do is enable them uh, for our environment and then configure them to the way that meet our policies, our requirements, right? And then, and then Azure and Google do the same. They provide a lot of like detection capabilities respond capabilities and all that. So they have services that are security specific. So like we have, like, you know, we talked to, we have, um, they dedicate, they had dedicated um, cybersecurity engineers, um, architect and architect that work with us closely, right? So, so like we get a lot of like recommendation, best practice, and we work with them on things because they the expert in right. the environment. So, and they support all the organization that has similar uh, concerns, like, you know, all the government agencies, right? So has similar concerns as us, how are they implement those controls, right? So we can learn from them. And so, yeah, we have access to all of those. And I think it's really helpful to really work with the vendors, right? To make sure that, you follow their best practices. And then depending on what industry um, you're on, like there are different requirements. Like for us, we follow NIST 800-53, that the federal requirements that we follow, like all of the requirements in I think Rep 5 now that we need to look into for implementation and making sure that we meet those. And those like, yeah, for federal government, federal contractors, yeah, so like NIST 800, that's 53. And then from um, financial, you had different, like from the payment car industry requirements that you had to meet, right? So there are different sets of controls. And like, I think those are just the some, uh, some of them that I'm mentioning, but like the CIS, the Center of Internet Security had recommendations for what the baseline requirements supposed to be for each of these um, um, cloud environment. So those are things that are really good for us to look into and see what is feasible for our organization. Yeah, but I think all the vendors are also, yeah, looking at help, like do their best to help us right. provide the services and the capabilities we need and then provide the people, access to the people we need, yeah. Now, I hear this, the complexity and I can imagine uh, there are so many different things that you're worrying and thinking about and a lot of it sounds like preventative or you're thinking ahead of things, but is there ever a day or a week where it is, 
extremely stressful because something happens or is it you're really just working and and the day goes along and it's you know for the last 10 years it's just pretty smooth or do you have crazy days where you know uh the stress level goes super high yes <laughs> there's not there there are crazy days hmm. but the <laughs> the the good thing is that the, the crazy days are not as many as the good days, right? Those those days are the day where, hey, now let's regroup and see what we can do better. The crazy days when we try to put out fire, right? You know, yes. like there's a vulnerabilities um, that happened right now. And then we need to patch every system as soon as possible. And how can we patch them safely? Because not all systems uh built eco right. they had in yeah like they had dependencies and all that stuff so you don't want to like um you know yeah. like if it just a regular system that you patch maybe like a payroll system or something that you patch maybe it's not as bad um that you had to bring that system down for a little bit but um um but if you try to patch a system that control uh, command a spacecraft and you accidentally run bring it down then that's yeah that is a big no-no right so we want to make sure that um yeah how can we patch a system and any system because like i say they all identify as critical systems that mean the attacker are targeting critical system because they don't want to go into like your test data right they want production data and if they can gain control of the the, the spacecraft uh, command center or something, that's the one that they go in, right? So those are critical systems. So how can we patch them, implement the patch safely? And and you see, like we monitoring like all the different vulnerabilities that like exist in like daily, right? Constantly we get notification of what's going on. And then like there are things that rate it high, like if it's a 10 out of 10 rating score, that's patch immediately, right? So how can we plan those? Because what kind of risk do, and if we cannot patch the system, what kind of uh, compensating controls do we need to put in place until when we can safely patch them, right? So that's a lot of things that are going on because not like everything you can patch as soon as there's a patch right. available. Yeah, so we had to see what compensating controls we need to put in place, at least um, contain it so that or protect it, put a bubble, <laughs> a bubble wrap around it. So that way, <laughs> that's way, yeah, the attacker won't get to it uh, before we can patch it, right? You have a lot of, ideas and you have a lot of uh knowledge about your very specific uh work i can't imagine what it's like for you to be inside of a room with uh people on your team um as a vietnamese woman um at jpl how does that is it a smooth ride for you good question ken <laughs> you know you that have, question you have so much knowledge and information about the way things ought to be and the way things should be i can imagine like you having so much to say and i can't imagine what because you know i've been in the military and i can't imagine all the people they probably look the same right a bunch of white guys 
really processing that information visually from you know a Vietnamese woman so you know obviously you're sitting inside of yourself experiencing this so I would love to hear what that's like yes yes you know I've been struggling with this for a very long time even when I just entered the U.S. right like my English were not good. I had to work so hard to make sure that I'm at the top of my class because I feel like that's the only way I can show people that I'm capable and I had the experience and expertise um, to do what I do and to, to show my value. And, and, and then walking into a room, like my whole team are male, right? I'm the only women. My cloud security team, every single one are male. Um, the number of female are very um, small at um, like in the technical fields, especially in cyber. And I think that's why I'm really grateful like for more um, younger, younger women to enter the field, right? It's just because one thing I had to balance is not like from a male, when they are aggressive, it's more forgiven. For women, when you are aggressive, they call you names, right? <laughs> so, and then, and then now you are Vietnamese women, um, like a minority too, like minority and minority on top of that. So it's make it a lot harder for me. Like for a very long time, I'm afraid to speak up. And I'm very grateful for people like us, right? That see my value and know that I know I had the knowledge and the experience and the expertise and encourage me to speak up and like to, to share my idea and yeah, to provide recommendations of what we can do to, yeah, to have a more secure environment at JPL, right? So it just like for the people like that, that I feel forever grateful, right? And that, that's how I gain my confidence. And then I start speaking up more. I'm still struggling still. Like a lot of time you had to really interrupt um, someone to get a word in because some people are very um, dominant and, and it just like, and then it's really easy for you go uh, for, for you to go back into your shell. You know, it's just like, it's easier to just be quiet instead of um, speak up. And I had to make, myself um speak up more that yeah like so it's it it's constant struggle like try to prove um because i feel like everything i say every words i say i've been judged and have value have impact so how can i make sure that every single word i say um not like you know you can't go back and change it mm -hmm. so how can you make sure that it's carry that weight right don't you can't go after you say it you can't go back and change it and then i don't want it to say something wrong and then um and then like the people that you know and then people don't forgive me and like lose the trust because it's harder to build that trust so i want to rather not say something um then say something and not sure, not certain. And that's why that like uh, one feedback that I got a lot from like my mentors, like on a lot of time people come back to me and say, hey, I say something that maybe not quite accurate. 
and then then they correct it and that's fine you mm. can do the same why do why are you so hard on yourself yeah. i say you know i just don't want to make the mistake because i feel like for me if i make a mistake it takes me a lot longer for be uh, for me to be forgiven right yeah. yeah and especially for me to forgive myself too so that's why unless i know 100% certain um especially when you had to disagree with someone opinion or recommendation i had to be at least 110% wow. to speak up <laughs> how far do you think you've gotten in the last 10 years working at jpl uh with that have you do you feel like that's improved a lot and you've gotten a hold of this issue i think somewhat it's still a struggle it's just because you know um i I get promotions and I go up at a higher level. And again, I feel like, yeah, when you had the power, the authority to make decision, to make suggestion that could impact the entire lab of the recommendation that you made, um, you really need to be think twice and cut once, right? You had to really think carefully about the decisions, the recommendation that you are, uh, yeah, that you make to make sure that you don't make the mistake that that may have long term impact. So I think in a way, I'm actually harder on myself now. It's just oh, because wow. I'm like, people yeah. say on you are the like almost the only expert, like I'm the only JPL cloud security architect. So people come to me for guidance regarding security of the cloud i don't want to be the one that say okay oh oops i just did something wrong that now there's an impact that i cannot go back and change right so i think in a way i'm a lot harder on myself now too like i had to think um like so like you know spend a lot more time thinking about the decision before i make them I don't like to just make the mistake and say, go back and say, okay, I just make a mistake. Oops. I don't want the oops. <laughs> you know, I, I'm asking my own self, why did I just ask that question to you? You know, yeah. I, I literally like sitting here thinking, why did I just ask that question? And, and my answer to myself is the reason I asked that question is because I, I wonder in the last 10 years, how much improvement in terms of my confidence to go out into the world to make decisions and be, I think in Vietnamese we call it jin chan, right? To be sure, yes. yeah. to be sure of what I'm saying makes sense. And I'm just kind of like, not comparing, but I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm comparing like somebody at your level and uh, just a regular person like me, just like the expectations that we have on ourselves and being Vietnamese, a minority and going out and playing on the world stage that there's a lot of implications to our own psychology and you know the answer that you gave was crushing to me because that's not the answer i wanted to hear you know like you you got it you're getting harder on yourself you know but i could see the logic uh, of where of what you're saying um because uh it, it it's almost like every year the stakes get higher as we as you um, gravitate or or get promoted into the work or the line of work that you're doing there's this but the game is a lot bigger and, and more challenging. Yeah, so, and the decision that I made will have a 
wider um, impact, right? To like how JPL is using the cloud, right? So I really need to make sure that my decision is carefully considered. Yeah. How, how does this impact the way you deal with relatives in Vietnam? Right, because it's a totally different world. The mindset in, in, in a room that you're dealing with on a daily basis at JPL is so different from the mechanics of uh, a woman uh, coming from a small village and the, the limited perception of your relatives in that village compared to where you are today. Like, how do you mitigate the differences uh, of that? So I think for me, my family still think I'm like a little girl because <laughs> they don't think that I'm like a techie <laughs> like a, uh, and I a lot of time well most of my work I cannot talk to them right yeah. I, I don't talk to them about uh, work but I know they felt like they feel so proud of me for being able to work at NASA so when I come home like they uh, introduce me to anyone in the village it's like oh, my daughter, my niece, my cousins or something, right? Work for NASA. <laughs> so like, that's the first thing they would say. Like they say, see, work for NASA. And then every time I come home, they want the NASA stickers and all that stuff. But they really don't know what I do. Like specifically, like they don't know all the work that I do. And they also feel that like, I'm so fragile that I need someone to take care of me. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm a strong woman. I, yeah, I'm very independent. I can take care of myself. <laughs> so I think, yeah, but I, I don't think that worry will ever go away. Just like you with children, right? I think when they, like, even when they're 50, you still no. think that they're your little yeah. children. Don't <laughs> uh, worry yeah. about. <laughs> and I think that the, the thing is, like, as, as we get older, um, yeah. we have more awareness of more things. And yeah. that creates more worry for, you know, if you have children or don't have children, you just get more, there's more worry. But then there's also, you know, you kind of let go of certain things too. Yeah. But I know they're really proud of me. They, yeah. they're really proud of me. And, and then, you know, with what small thing that I can do to help my family in my village. I do like every time I come home, I would bring things that like, every like just little things to give to the children like balloons candies and like you know your son yeah. for the older people <laughs> yeah so like the little things like that i just and then like if i can help financially i will also help like i help pay for my um my brother's son education and then now my niece and then also my cousin uh children like um, she's a single mother, like she worked as a janitor um, at the hospital and her child is so smart. She could get into any school, you know, she gets scholarship for like really for um, playing sport also. So she's like really smart. The only fault she has were born into a poor family. Right. Yeah. And so that's right. how I told her well, she's in college now, the second year now. But I told her when she was still in high school, I said, don't worry about like college education, like cost. Just try to get into the school that you want to get into. And then I will help you and your mom pay for that. Yeah. 
right? I don't want her to have to worry about what school can she go in and what school can she afford, right? Yeah. So that are the things that I try to give back to my family and my village. Like anything I can do, I'm I'm not rich, but anything I can do to help, um, I want to do. You know, we talked about that earlier, the struggle or the fault of being born poor is, is that a real problem? Because I think that like we discussed, oftentimes having the experience of the struggle is far more better than living a good life without the struggle. And then you have no teeth or no claws because it's like an animal who's been raised in a zoo. Yeah, what do you think? analogy. <laughs> yeah, you know, I feel like, yes, the struggle, like, is really helps help the person. I really don't wish that everyone had to go through the struggle that I've been, like, through, right? But um, what I don't want it for the child to experience is that, I cannot have a further, I cannot further my education because my mom or dad cannot pay right. for my college education, right? I feel like that shouldn't be their fault that they were born so poor into a poor family, right? If they wanted that education, we should make it available to them. And I feel as a society, we'd be better off with those. Yeah, with those children had a better education and a better life. Just like for me, I was lucky enough to be able to come here. And now I'm here working at NASA, right? I feel like I'm walking on water every day. Wow. And I wanted every child or every woman, if not every single child, to experience what I experienced, right? But I don't want them to have to go through the struggle uh, to get to where I am. It, if they can have an easy life, but still be able to see what right and wrong, what good and evil, right? And be a good person. I think that's fine, right? That's hard though. That's- Yeah, that, I know, right? <laughs> having a good life. It's, I think the chances of, of, you know, more who is, you know, more spoiled is the yeah. likelihood of, you know, a good life, a, a life where your mom and dad gives you everything, you know, I, and I bring this up every now and then too. I had three or four cousins, four cousins that came from the camps uh, in the eighties. Uh, they, you know, they left Vietnam without their parents and they were, you know, five years older than me. They're young boys, 13, 11, whatever. They were young. Those guys, their claws and their teeth is much thicker, much more aggressive than mine. And <laughs> I I always marvel at the way that they function because they're very resourceful. They're very hungry and ambitious and all the good things. And they struggled. Uh, they didn't have a relationship with their mom and dad because their mom and dad were stuck in Vietnam and yeah. they couldn't, you know, they couldn't, they didn't have a warm relationship growing up uh, 10, 15 years being away from their mother or father. Um, but I look at them and I have this appreciation for what they went through. Yeah, and, like me, I, my brother and I, we yeah. were forced to grow up early. Yeah, to like at 18 and 20, we didn't, yeah, we had to take care of our parents. And, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and you're right. I felt very determined. Like yeah. I needed to do this. I needed to be successful. I have to be successful. I cannot like be lazy or you know. It's just like that's like a burden. So yeah. I understand completely. Yeah, like you say, maybe because all the children they always have what they want. They don't work as hard because they feel like, hey, I will always have a trust fund or something. That I mean, yeah. it doesn't even have to get to that level. I I deal with this every day now. Like when when my children sees other kids riding a bike, and I said to myself, I'm gonna hold off on buying them anything as long as possible. I, I thought about that even before they were born. I'm like, I'm not going to spoil them. The minute they say, oh my God, dad, can I get a bike? I go on my computer on Amazon. I'm looking for bikes already. And and I can't help it. I can't help that anymore. It's just, I, I'm kind of giving into that problem. I'm trying to struggle to fight it, but I wanted to, I, I always thought to myself, oh, when my kids get to 18, they're gonna have to go work at a part-time job and go get a car, right? I got to give them that gift of of ambition of struggle but it's so hard even at the, at the bike level it's hard <laughs> you know, yes it's, yes it's so i remember i wanted a baby doll when i was little so badly because my neighbor children my same age my classmate had one and i don't have one i remember i was like my grandpa would like you know make um hmm. like cow and pig and all those figurines and pot and paint out of mud for us you know those uh clay yes. yeah clay mud so that's how we play like those are the toys we had when we were little <laughs> i never had like a baby doll and at that time it was so basic the one that if you lay it down it closes eyes and you pick it up it opened his eyes and we still couldn't afford it <laughs> me and my friends and i we talk about this idea of game theory um and i think doing what you do there's some some studies you probably had to really dig into that um what is your experience and training uh in that and how does it relate to cybersecurity? i hope it's not a general question but i'm i'm generally interested how it it plays uh in uh with each other the dynamics of the those two things well i did my research a lot of like you know machine learning and artificial intelligence and all that yeah they touch game theories also so like, how do you think, just like from the intrusion detection um, uh, standpoint, I try to relate it to cyber, right? So it's almost like, how, how do we explain it in a simplistic form here? Like thinking of playing a game, you and the attackers, one is trying to catch the other one. The attacker tried to be one step ahead of you right, so that they can get to the target uh, assets or data that they're looking for. So how can you build a strategy? Because sometimes things is random, but not always, like, you know, not really random. I, I feel like everything's a patterns and how do we look into that, mm -hmm. right? So um, it's not really that random. So how can we build a strategies to look like if, um, if the attacker, if you is real when you try to chase it real time, is that if they make this move, what should you do? Like, how can you, yeah, how can you, um, how, how can you implement a strategy or 
figure out the next move that you should make so that you can either um, divert them, like make them look the other way, like where you're, where it's like a test uh, data set, a, a test server or something instead of your real production server, right? So what kind of um, uh, steps should you put in place so that you can um, make them look somewhere else that you shouldn't or like if you want to, um, okay, I'm so sorry. I had this in mind, but I don't know how I can explain it. In game to win, you have to be one step ahead, mm -hmm. right? And you have to look at a way if you, if you cannot um, get to um, the goal, as quick as you can, how can you make sure you distract the other person also so that they they make the wrong move or they they become careless and 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 uh, and um, making a lot of noise that you can see how to yeah how to stop them from yeah from advanced. Um, this sounds a lot like Katung. Yeah. <laughs> how do you know? <laughs> Because when I'm hearing you talk, I'm like, you probably were playing Katung when you were growing up. It sounds so, you know, exactly like you're describing, you know, the way my dad taught me how to play, right? <laughs> yes. My, my brother and I, that's, I'm grateful for my mom and dad forever, right? They couldn't give me that baby doll, but they give me and my brother that Katung uh, table. Wow. And we play every single day. It's like after old, school and finish our homework <laughs> how old were you when you started probably five or six and my brother eight i think yeah my parents started us very early and then um like all the different games and i think that's how i always like i don't see just like i guess that's how they train my mind i never see things just right in front of me i always a few steps ahead of what is in front of me always in my life and that's how I feel like that's how I stay safe you know like try to protect myself yeah so that's how I stay safe is I can see a few steps ahead or around me my surrounding like how can I make sure that I don't get in trouble I don't get hurt and yeah <laughs> we can we talk and transition into our personal cyber safety um, because I think that that is something that we try to think about, but I don't think that enough thought is given to cyber safety for a regular person. Yeah. So you want me to like, give yeah, you some, some things that some basic things that, you know, that, um, you know, as we're ending our, you know, um, episode here, I want to really touch upon that, uh, you know, some basic ideas of like, what can we do to protect ourselves, you know, on our laptop and our personal lives? Yes. Okay. So I have so many, <laughs> so many tips just because, you know, I started out in cyber because I wanted to protect myself. Right. So I feel like the most basic things if, to protect your computers since you started, um, yeah, that topic is to make sure you stay up to date with patching. Like, you know, like a lot of time, like new updates that coming out uh, for different apps that you have in your oper um, in your computer or your operating systems that making sure that if there's a patch, make sure you update it. So like configure the, um, um, in the system reference, maybe configure the automatic check and update your patches. So keep, keep that up to date because a lot of the vulnerabilities once they published and they had like a real, uh -huh. Um, exploit in the wild 
you want to make sure your computer is patched to protect it from those vulnerabilities. So that's one thing. And then also limit what like um, application you have in your computer, right? You don't use it, just delete them, remove mm -hmm. them. Don't keep them if you don't use them because that's just open for more attack vectors, right? And um, yeah, so just remove them. And I I think one, one other thing with like just thinking about all the different um, apps and everything, like for camera, like for location tracking, like a lot of apps that um, you turn on, they ask you, hey, this system or this app want to track your location uh, for better services you or something, turn that off. Because people taking pictures with their location embedded in them and they upload it to like Facebook or like any kind of social media platform. If I'm an attacker, if I'm like targeting you, I know exactly where you are what what store you frequent or restaurant you frequent and all that stuff or you, if you're on vacation right so making sure you don't post those type of information including like when you'll be on vacation your kid photos and all that stuff right because if they want to rob you they want you to not be home when they right. come to rob you <laughs> so yeah that's that's one thing to yeah to look out for and then maybe other things like uh for the you know the scam or identity theft I feel like that is the basic things that you can do is to just go in and freeze, like set up the security freeze in your like three credit bureaus, like, you know, the um, Equifax, Equifax? Yes. Yeah, TransUnion, TransUnion. and um, Experian. So like set that, that's free. So if they stole your social or your driver license or any other information, and they want to apply for a credit card under your name, they have to check your credits and they can't. Yeah, so it may be inconvenient mm. for you to try to apply for a credit card because you have to unfreeze them, but at least apply that freeze. So the attacker cannot apply, yeah, cannot um, um, check your credit so that they can apply for a credit card under your name. So I think that's the most easy way to protect you from like those, yeah, identity thefts. And then I think some other um, some other way that you can protect yourself, like, you know, just don't click on any links. Like I see a lot of text messages that say, hey, you had this, uh, yeah. you win this thing, uh, this contest, or you have your um, delivery schedule here, click on this to check your status and all that stuff. If you don't expect any of those things, don't click on them. And usually if it's too good to be true, it is too good to be true. So yeah, just don't, don't, yeah, don't fall for those like links or anything. And if they call you and say, hey, your account has been hacked. If it's a bank, if it's uh, like whatever, Google or anything that you normally use and they say, oh, um, you have, your account has been hacked and you have to like, oh, iCloud, right? Your account has been hacked and now you have to like, uh, contact um click on this link to uh, to do this or that immediately or your account will be suspended or something call mm -hmm. call the company directly get the customer support number don't call don't respond to that email or that text mm -hmm. message because yeah just call them directly and say hey is this real i get this message and then they will tell you no usually that 
99.99999% is the scammer trying to get your info, especially when it sounds so urgent, right? You have right. to do this or your account get disconnected or disabled or something. Just call the bank, call Google, call I, uh, Apple or whoever directly or go to their website directly. Yeah, don't click on any links that you don't expect. Don't open attachments that you don't expect because they could come from your people they could come from the people on your distro like distribution because if my account if i connect with you and my account hacked they can yield my contact list and to send out all that right and then they yield my mm -hmm. account so you the oh it's come from on it must be trusted no it's not and don't respond to that email because if they already have my email they will respond back and say yes it's been like it's real it's on but it's not really on yeah but you know the hard part is when you get these uh emails or messages in your brain you don't slow down and you panic it, it puts you in a, a quick panic like you got to respond you got to respond so yeah. i think that's how they get you sometimes uh is these messages go out and you have like you have 24 hours to respond or whatever and so you're panicking and you your inhibitions drop exactly or like you know oh you were so happy you want something so you try to click on the links to see what you yeah what you want all that stuff because it's like it seemed like 500 dollars i can yeah. use right or something so and then make sure you change like you don't use the same passwords for any of your accounts like don't use the same passwords for every single account, right because that way if they one of your system or account is get compromised they don't get access to all of your other account right. uh, better. And then I think for like critical application, like your banking and all that, and then Amazon, they offer the multi-factor authentication also. So use those wherever you can get your multi-factor authentications. That's mean if they get your password, they still need to know something else to be able to get into your system, right? So I think that's always good. And then, like for your Wi-Fi, I think for what with Wi-Fi, like usually people just put it on the default or make it something that's really easy to guess. Um, change your Wi-Fi password right away, making sure that you have your um your um Wi-Fi network like segmented. Like I have my work um zone, I have my guest zone. So like my friends come and visit me and say, on oh, can I access? Can I get onto your Wi-Fi? I'm not going to just give them my main right. Wi-Fi, right? So I just get them the guest Wi-Fi with the password so they can log onto that. And then your internet of things. This thing, you know, I'm just so paranoid. I don't have series. I don't have smart door. <laughs> I don't have those things right. in my house. Just because it, your series can order your pizza or can record your conversation. If you don't set them up correctly, one day everything will be on the iCloud somewhere, on the cloud somewhere, right? On the internet somewhere. So you make sure you configure them correctly. Or if your door has a smart door, it could maybe just like get hacked and open it automatically for the hack the hacker, right? Or your baby camera. I know that there's yeah, there are incidents about like people that use baby camera to monitor monitor their kids and then they get hacked. The attacker can monitor your kids too. So yeah, that incident, like people playing 
prank with other people calling the police say oh this and that at this house or that, that house because they can see your whole house where you have your camera too like people like yeah they have that ring camera or yeah. something not just at the door but inside your house too if you don't set them up correctly not just you can see what in your house other people can too <laughs> so i think those are very important to make sure that you configure them correctly and you set them if it's private set it to private if you don't mean for it to be public right set it to private and then if you upload to your whatever cloud instances hopefully they encrypt it yeah because yeah. you don't want your data especially your sensitive data get um um, um get um, um viewed by all the unauthorized people right like long time ago that the Apple Cloud or whatever that hacked for that celebrity, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So if you encrypted it, if they even if they get in, they may not be able to see your data just because your data is encrypted. So yeah, those are some of the things. And then um, yeah, you so pay attention to your smart home devices, um, not just smart home, but had to be a secure home as well right so we don't want yeah we don't want um the hacker to get access to your smart home devices and then um and then i think you asked the question is for regular people but i also think it is make our job a lot easier if companies start building anything with security in mind like you know all the startup companies and all those too like start with security in mind how do you want to um to protect your data, who do you want to have access to that data? So train your developers, your programmers, your tester, designer, engineer, architect to have that security mindset. So that that way you're not just focusing on the functionalities, but also security and usability of the system, right? So I feel like those are things that we can do like at any level, like think like a hacker, build security in upfront and then just that way it makes it a lot easier than try to fix it later or like you don't want to be well you want to be on the front page for good things not for, <laughs> <laughs> not for the bad things like yeah so for embarrassing things so just yeah just just try to stay safe um but i don't know let me think if I have like, you know, information, like recommendation, like for people that try to get into like cyber field too. Like, I don't, I, I really want more women to get into cyber. And I feel like don't limit yourself with like, hey, I'm not good with math. I'm not good with computer science. I can't get in. We have so many different things that you can do. We have people that are technical writer because a lot of time tech, techie, people we don't know how to communicate right. with, with like to get the common people or our users to our average user to understand the importance of security or the technology like what we try to implement it the benefit and all that stuff right so we have technical writer that will help us make the message much easier Clear. to understand so if you are a good writer that's your field and then we also have people that not very techy but like looking at policies and all that stuff right so from the policy perspective and then we have people that like red teaming like ethical hackers so i we talk a lot about the bad hackers but they are ethical hackers that like i thought about like the testers that looking for 
vulnerable system applications that they can get into, but we report these to our team, like right. our blue team, right? So our red team work with our blue team. Hey, we found vulnerable uh, vulnerabilities in this system. We can get in here. We can exfiltrate data here and all that stuff. So those people are more techie. They can write scripts to run, to launch attacks, to, yeah, to, to find vulnerabilities. And then we have people that do incident response. They look through logs, they find, they detect um, vulnerabilities and then they respond to them. Like, you know, the response phase is difficult too. It's like, how can you make sure that you don't scare the attacker away or like you try to turn off the system immediately or something and then they try to erase all of their tracks and then you can't go back and, and piece them all together, right? So you want to have a full story. So how can you do that gracefully? Like, right? how you can contain it? How can you make sure that you can contain the attack so that it cannot move laterally, like to other system or infect other system or people, right? So so that's another art like, in itself. Like, so we have our whole team that do incident responding, right? And then we also have like, yeah, so, I think I mentioned a lot of like, and then the audit people like go in and just do auditing. And I think we really need those people, the auditors, their experience in looking through, not just like mm -hmm. from the high level policies controls, right? But looking into the code, like line by line and see like, where's the vulnerabilities, right? Looking into the code and understand it. Like, so those are very, like, that's why I feel like it's a vast area for everybody to get in. It's not like one thing. Right. You don't have to be good at this or that. You can, it's un, like limitless for me. I didn't even think I'd be a cyber cloud security architect or a cyber security engineer yeah. and I'm here today, right? And I just feel like I don't want anyone to be limited. Yeah. To like, just what they know. <laughs> but thank, thank you, you so much for opening up and, and, and being you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Ken. I really, you know, I keep telling people the time that you give to the people are the best gift that you can give to them. It's just because time is finite. And so I, I just hope that our session today really rich some people and inspire them, you know, I, I, I really do hope that. And I'm just so grateful for you. Thank you for doing this because without you, I wouldn't even be on here speaking. So I'm just so grateful for you. You are really very um, future focused and really hope our next generation of Vietnamese, you know, and one more thing, I'm very proud of my Vietnamese heritage, right? I always wear my, wear my Vietnamese hat when I was at JPL and people were like, that's on, that's her famous hat. It's like I wear the, the $2 Vietnamese hat walking around lab. <laughs> I say, hey, it's only $2 and it cover my head for rain and heat. <laughs> so yeah, I'm really happy. You know, JPL so is a great place and I really love it. You get to visit it too. So yeah, after they open it up to the public, I will let you know, and then right. maybe we can coordinate. So have actual person to give you a tour, and not just me and Chris. <laughs> I would love to have you and Chris. I mean, obviously, because we, you know, we're friends, and I would love to have that uh, personal tour with you and Chris. So yes, sure, yeah. But we can have a tour guide to tell you the history of JPL and all that stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Have a wonderful weekend, and uh, we will talk to you very soon. 
You too, Ken. Thank okay. you so much for the opportunity. Take care. Okay, Ann. Yeah, take care. But, okay, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Thanks again for listening.